Welcome back to the Spoil Thread Society. It's been a while now since our last episode. Dear listeners, initiates, federal government stalkers, every single one of you, you have my apologies. Things have been a little tied up. We've got a great one coming for you today. And while you sit back and enjoy this, please understand that work continues unabated on the collapse of the Vatican Bank and all the attendant deaths. As I've told you time and time again, when you get deep into these spider webs, there's more and more and more threads to unspool. But we have some very good content coming on what is more or less the main arc of this quote-unquote season. So enjoy your creature feature of the week. Uh, With that being said, I'm welcoming back a fairly new but recurring guest and one of my absolute favorite guests. If you would like to introduce yourself again, sir. As Mike Roach here. Good to be on with you again. Um, we're here to talk about a matter which is close to my both my heart and my professional background. Um, I've been working in healthcare my entire career. I am currently deeply involved in the practice of clinical development of both drugs and medical devices, um, mostly from a business perspective, and I will leave it there. Uh, but suffice to say, I, I've kind of seen a lot within how the healthcare industry functions and you know, you and I have kind of gone back and forth on this. And so I think that um, we're going to have a good time here. And let's get into kind of the spooky connections between medicine and the kind of darker, more mysterious elements of the human experience. Looking forward to this one. I would absolutely love to do that. You know, without spoiling the whole thesis here, I think people are going to be quite surprised at what you're going to say, given your background. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Um, So first things first, I I think it would be good to kind of set levels with the audience here. um, And let's talk about the basics of pharmacology and medicine, uh, the basics of intervention. So the first vector that we're going to address here is the drug vector. Drugs are basically inert compounds, which are not food, which affects the way the body or mind functions. Uh, This is everything from taking mercury to grinding up different root barks and drinking them in a tea. Uh, This is, you know, advanced chemistry on things like anabolic steroids. Uh, So this is basically, you know, anything you'd associate with a traditional apothecary all the way out through chemotherapy, Viagra, any of these types of compounds, anything in pills, elixirs, syrups, anything like that. Paz, any questions on what drugs are, how they function? Uh, gosh, that's a loaded question. I suppose I can't ask that question yet. No, I do have some, but I need to let you set it up more for our discussion before I start pulling the them. But effectively what these things do is they send a chemical into the body to act on certain systems which are already existing within the body. Um, whether that is the immune system, the endocrine system, so forth, the digestive system, you know, taking something as simple as a Tums in order to neutralize stomach acid um, is a really 
basic but very clear example of, of how a drug works and the way it interacts with human systems. So taking a step into the spooky, and then we'll take a step back out. Um, the next one is biologicals. So these are kind of where things get a little weird because this starts with things like fermented, you know, taking fermented mare's milk um, as a dietary supplement when you're sick, eating pickles, things like that. Uh, cod liver oil would be another example of, of an early biological. Uh, another example of a biological would be one of the core, <laughs> one of the core agents in healing for any type of eye surgery is a compound that is actually extracted from the boiling of sheep testicles. Um, yeah, but cataract surgery is one of the earliest forms of surgery. Uh, it goes back about 1200 years. So if, if they're using it, there's gotta be a reason for it, right? So biologicals are also things like smallpox vaccines, uh, chickenpox vaccines. The treatment for anthrax, for example, is partially developed from horses who are naturally exposed to it and have a skin infection, which resembles something more like a dermatitis than a uh, than like a hemorrhagic fever or smallpox sores in horses. So it's been able to be reverse engineered to be used to treat. Um, acute systemic outbreaks of anthrax. So that's like the kind of spooky end of biologicals. Uh, questions on that? Well, but I'm going to derail us just a little bit, but I had no idea. Do researchers have any idea what about horses makes it closer to a dermatitis in them? So it's the nature of the infection. Um, you know, this is kind of kicked up from the dirt. It's a low level of, of spore exposure. It never really passes into the bloodstream and it kind of sits on, on the top of the skin and humans can actually get this type of a, you know, a reaction to anthrax, um, as well as other types of naturally occurring, uh, mold and things of that nature. So it, really depends on both the strain, the nature of the outbreak, the animal itself. Um, you know, obviously this is not going to be on something, you know, deep skin punctures or anything like that, uh, because then it's going to get into the bloodstream and do nasty things. Yeah. I had no idea that manifested like that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for indulging me there. Oh no, no problem. So the last type of medical intervention is biomechanical intervention, and this is everything from surgeries to prostheses. Uh, the basics would be something as simple as the setting of a bone, the extracting of a teeth, of, of a tooth, excuse me, the amputation of a limb from battle injuries, um, peg legs, you know, canonical example. Um, anything that is working to either augment the existing biomechanical systems. And when I say biomechanical systems, I mean bones, tendons, things like that, things that actually move the levers of the body, um, artificial hip joints, artificial stuff yet at this point. We're getting close. Um, exoskeletons are coming, but they are really more about bringing people back up to par, if you will. Um, giving them, you know, a kind of reasonably effective level of accommodation right now, or in healthy people taking something like a repetitive stress task of say lifting, you know, between 25 and 75 pounds from the floor to head height or shoulder height, 
hundreds of times a day. That that's an example of where an exoskeleton technology is already in use, uh, but we're not anywhere near the level of superhuman enhancements, uh, full on cybernetics. Um, but you know, this gets surgery also interacts with the other two, right? Because often you, you need to use a lot of drugs in order to have a successful surgery. Um, infection being still to this day, one of the primary killers of people, even in, um, you know, quote unquote, modern industrialized countries with good healthcare systems. So that's the kind of basics. Yeah. Actual quality inside of a lot of allegedly first world hospitals looks like. Exactly. But yeah, so those are the kind of basics of medical intervention. So that's kind of where we are in terms of the big building blocks of the way medicine works. And, you know, there's a lot of different actors in the system. There's hospitals, there's professional groups, there's pharmaceutical companies, there's medical device companies, there's research organizations. Um, and then there's, you know, the professional services that support all of these people, accountants, lawyers, etc. Um, it does move a lot of money around to a lot of people. And, and in many ways, one of the dirty secrets that not a lot of people talk about is that this is a distributed system. It exists in every state in the United States. There are a lot of people with a lot of really good jobs that give them, um, you know, a really good standard of living, uh, as well as challenging problems to solve. So that is, in my opinion, one of the bigger structural blocks, uh, of broad scale systemic reform than, people probably would give it credit for, you know, everybody likes to point to the, you know, it's the insurance companies, it's the drug companies. Well, you know, everybody's working together in a lot of ways that people who haven't really seen the inside don't understand. That's a, that's a digression. Anything else, right? You don't want to see how the sausage is made typically, right? Right. Something like that. All right. Um, now we're going to get into your territory. Paz, tell me, what is an egregore? Yeah, let's do it. Well, as every listener of this show should know by now, and anyone who's even accidentally seen my Twitter feed should know, what an egregore is when an idea becomes sufficiently believed in and it attains a critical mass of belief energy or thought power that it's been able to feed on, it gains a sort of low-level sentience or awareness and can begin acting back on us, the people who believe in it, to further propagate itself. You know, it's this sort of idea that also happens with, like, urban legends, or people developing stress responses in themselves because they believe a scary story a little too much. You know, and that's sort of the rationalist, materialist way of looking at it. The sort of mystical woo-woo way of looking at it is we are literally creating sentience in ideas by believing in them too much. And now, again, as listeners will know, I am very quick to dismiss rationalist, materialist ideas about this stuff. So suffice to say, an egregore is a collectively created thought form 
gain sentience based on runaway power supply of our psychic energy and belief. Okay. So everybody here is familiar with germ theory, what it is, right? That essentially there are these small living microbes that uh, work to perpetuate themselves in, in ways that are sometimes beneficial to us, sometimes harmful to us. Um, often it's a matter of the kind of strain and what's happened, you know, in a particular person or in a particular setting. There is a push and a pull between environment and disease. Notice how often tropical diseases um, have a similar portfolio of symptoms. Notice how plague diseases have a similar portfolio of symptoms and a, a type of outward manifestation of the internal damage that's happening, right? So why would that be? Why would these different geographies have different categories of kind of infections and vectors? Um, so number one is obviously environment counts. And number two is the human response is actively driving the evolution of the disease. Um, you'll see in primitive societies, they will often do okay for a disease outbreak because their tradition holds that what you need to do is you need to kill the sick calf. Um, you need to exile <laughs> the weak, right? Um, others that, others that don't have that kind of, you know, more primitive, more, you know, closer to the edge perspective will attempt to take these people in, keep them in the community. Um, then the disease spreads. Often you'll hear it discussed primitively as if it were a malevolent spirit. And in many ways, that's not what it is, but that's not far off. Right. Uh, because these things are interacting, right? They're working together. Human behavior is influencing the disease while the disease is influencing human behavior. Um, one of the most often repeated instances of this is toxoplasmosis, which is the, um, it's a, I forget what exactly it is, but essentially it's a disease that is commonly found in cats. Uh, but when rats get it, they are less fearful of cats. They are more likely to seek out um, environments which they can be killed by cats. Um, humans who have this in their brains collect more cats, right? Like, why would that be happening? It can turn on it. That is the crazy cat lady, right? That's precisely it. And these things often have a feedback loop where the only source of kind of, for lack of a better word, meaning is coming. <laughs> from that microbe, if you will. Um, that microbe is in many ways in charge of, of the organism. But there's a different way that this works, and this works in mass hysteria. Um, and mass hysteria, oftentimes, you know, they, they always say that the worst thing is panic, and there's a reason for that, and that's because when people are panicking, their normal defenses aren't up. They're not acting rationally. They're not squared away, if you will, like the gates are open. Does that make sense? And that's an interesting metaphor to use, too, isn't it? Especially in the context exactly. of confidence and beliefs, right? So take something like bubonic plague. 
uh, one of the phenomenon that kept repeating itself during the repeated outbreaks of plague in Europe were these so-called flagellants, right? <laughs> so what is the last thing that you would want to do when something like plague is around? Spraying blood everywhere, gathering masses of people in public. But they were so defeated by the virulence of this, you know, which was feeding on their environment that they had no other response. So in many ways, they perpetuated a lot of behaviors which were contributing to the spread of the disease, um, which I, I think says a lot about, you know, what this means to the human experience, what the role of this type of stuff in, in driving, you know, where society goes. But that said, as we need to talk about Matt, mass hysteria and specifically specifically look at what we had very recently right <laughs> let's do it so there's often a rational component to the response right um where you're kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks it's truly a crisis but the problem is, is that often people who are in that mode get stuck there. Um, COVID was a real crisis where I'm at in my region of the country in March and April of 2020. There, there were a lot of people dying. The hospitals were full. Um, it's a real bug, right? Absolutely. But look at what we did. Look at what we did to let it in. We knew where it was. We knew where it was coming from, but we couldn't stop it. Because to stop it would have undermined our conceptualization of what our society is supposed to look like. So we left the gates open. And meanwhile, we're running around trying to keep everybody in their houses. The gates to the city are wide open. So that is kind of my personal take on the subject. Um, a lot of people reacted rationally at first and then they hung on to a position that was you know killing people and for lack of a better word you know destroying whatever it was that they were trying to save because they couldn't accept their own mistakes and they couldn't accept that there was a vector that they weren't understanding that there was a vector that they were overweighting what do you have to say about that pass <laughs> Do you think it happened on such a conscious level as that? No. No, I, I don't think that many people are even capable of, of piercing this veil um, and being able to hold these kind of two strains of, you know, for lack of a better word, theories of the mind when it comes to medicine, right? One being the, the mystical side of things, that this is an arcane art. Um, that's a bargain with the earth, a bargain with the devil, a bargain with God, right? Pulling one back from the other side, taking one out of the river sticks. Um, that's always been there until very recently, this element that there are causes we don't understand, things that we can't map, um, things that we don't really know why they work. We can only observe that they have. I, I had to ask that right away, because when we think about the context of the example that we're using, 
you know, this is the way the response was shaped and dictated was very clearly by a group of people who either only think on one track or very maliciously chose to hold the rest of us on one track. And we talk about mass hysteria, and it seems clear to me that there was, in fact, a campaign to stoke the hysteria, at least for some time. You know what I'm saying? And I think that becomes relevant to the discussion. Then. That's why I had to ask. So these things, again, like, like what we said, they take on a life of their own. They become self-feeding. They become self-perpetuating. You know, when, once you hand a kind of group of people a menu of incentives, naturally they're going to pick the ones that are, are most beneficial to them and their pre-existing goals, right? Um, you know, look back at the Black Plague. One of the defining outcomes of that era was the seizure of more power, more rights and liberties by the more commercial aspects of society, uh, by the very people who had in many ways brought that in. I mean, not at their own choosing, not at their own understanding, not even necessarily to feed their own demands, but the Black Plague inevitably results in some of the greatest transfers of wealth and power from, you know, the traditional nobility to the new nobility of the mercantile classes. Um, you know, again, th this is a... The, the city-state of Genoa, right? Where their exactly. ships were instrumental in accidentally bringing the plague to Europe, and the Italian city-states then became one of the big winners when it allowed them to siphon off enough capital power to basically start the renaissance immediately after the plague cleared up. Exactly. Now, to make the case that this was an intentional process, I think would be ascribing a level of agency, organization, um, forethought, and scientific understanding that just isn't there. I, I think it's inaccurate, um, and I'm I'm personally not not prone to those types of speculations and, and those kind of ex post facto narrative creations. Um, but yeah, you're 100% right in, in that in many ways, old Europe was used as kindling. Um, and the plague was just one vector of that, of course. Um, but the important part is that in the plague, you do see what a successful societal response to, you know, really the comet that killed the dinosaurs, right? Um, we're talking death rates of up to 70%, 75%, 100% isolated villages and hamlets. Some get missed. Um, but the ones that get missed, often they had a lot in common. They had a proactive response to this. They were actively working on things. Um, and in many ways, one of the earliest and most successful response, public health responses that we've ever seen is, again, from Italy, called a quarantine. So the nature of quarantine essentially is that you hold something for a period of time. Quarantine comes from quarantena, which is Venetian for 40 days, which is a 40-day isolation of ships. 
to prevent the spread of plague pioneered in Venice, but, you know, rapidly other cities found it. Um, and it worked. And to that point, it was pioneered in Venice. And if I'm recalling correctly, that was, in fact, not a response to the Black Plague or the Bubonic Plague, but to, uh, was it the Justinian Plague? Basically, the bubonic plague before the bubonic plague. I suppose what I'm saying is that's not Italian innovation as in Roman, right? The idea that roughly around or immediately before the Crusades, I guess is what I'm saying. Relatively recently in the grand scale of history. It was, uh, you know, in many ways, this is one of those things that, that's kind of continually lost and rediscovered. You know, the, in theory, you could trace this back to Leviticus, which, you know, like many of the books of the Bible, is an unreliable narration of the, the conquest of the Levant. Um, the medieval Islamic societies um, in Persia used quarantines, you know, for leprosy, things like that, anything with an outward kind of manifestation. Um, you know, the practice of quarantining lepers was around for hundreds of years in the Islamic world. So it, it is in many ways a, a an exclusive but universal practice, if that makes sense. Um, you can continually find examples of it. And, you know, this goes back, you can even see this in the animal kingdom where there will be a sick animal in the herd and another another buffalo will finish it off or something of that nature or they'll leave it for the wolves. The pack will just move the, away faster than it can keep up very intensely. Exactly. Exactly. So what does this tell us about the kind of psychic manifestation of disease well number one it obviously says that preparedness and an affirmative footing helps um so where else do we see that um, where we can find this notion of an affirmative response being a, a critical part of healing paz what is one of the few repeatable findings in all of social and medical science it's the placebo effect Exactly. You got quiet. On so there. The, I was wondering if that's what you were fishing for, or if there was something else there. <laughs> that is exactly what I was fishing for. So a placebo is basically a fake medicine that is presented as real. Everything in the ritual is conducted as if it were real. Um, the idea here is that the mind is working, you know, through deception. It's meant to make the mind work better. Um, really where this kind of comes across and where we find this is in clinical medicine, where, where in many ways um, what you need to do is you need to figure out whether whatever it is you're using can even beat the brain, right? This applies less to surgical and biomechanical um, interventions where you're measuring against an existing practice. Uh, but this is for drugs and biologicals, right? If Because if you can't beat the brain, the substance isn't actually doing anything, right? Like that's the proof that as to whether or not there is even a material effect on the biological, hormonal, you know, neurochemical processes in a subject. 
The placebo effect basically... So there are a lot of people that think that um, that the placebo effect is unethical. I inherently don't believe that because, as of what I said, you know, medicine is a societal negotiation, a, a continuing process by which we make a negotiation with the natural and material worlds, you know, through human hands and good intentions, right? Um, so I, I don't think it's unethical to to try placebos because inherently you are participating in a process of healing. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of differences between medicine and healing and how they work together. They're not necessarily exclusive, uh, but, you know, again, the power of positive thinking works in observational studies and simultaneously in a very controversial meta, uh, meta analysis um, this psychologist, Irvin Kirsch, <laughs> concluded that 82% of the response to antidepressants was accounted for by the placebo effect. Um, a lot of people don't really believe that. They take uh, issue with some of his methodology. Uh, a lot of people say it's not quite as effective as antidepressants. I again, does it really matter if what we're trying to do here is make people better with a minimum amount of you know impact on the other systems? I would argue no, it, it does not. Um, and therefore, it is not unethical because what you are inherently doing is you are participating in a positive process by which you are, um, you know, by an abstract notion, looking out for both the individual and the society's best interest. But you know. You can easily say, well, of, of course, Mike, you would take that position. Please do. So are you at all familiar with Dean Radin? Dean Radin. Dean Radin. Refresh my memory. So this dude is possibly the biggest name in parapsychology, and he's kind of the okay. clinical research into just how this sort of spiritualist medicine physically affects the body. He's done a lot of work with ESP, which I think is what he's most famous for, but he's also done really mm -hmm. phenomenal okay, this guy. positive intention healing and maybe not espousing it for himself, but his work in quantifying how it can be effective for people. You know, I, I'm entirely un, unfamiliar with that, but, you know, it, it's – there's a reason why white is associated with medicine, you know, it, going back thousands of years, right? Um, why cleanliness is associated with health, why the biggest gains in health and wellness at the societal level are from the, base, the most basic aspects of sanitation and wound care um, and infection prevention. You know, in many ways, you could make the case that – all of this is downstream from a, a positive affirmative footing, right? Um, in many ways, that's kind of my thesis here, that all of these things are working together in concert and you're harnessing a, a collective power here um, of science, engineering, and, you know, a spiritual grounding 
that many people wouldn't even necessarily understand is happening kind of behind the scenes. And, and I so, don't believe that these things can be separated. If you'll then, on that note, permit me the first gotcha of the evening. Uh, just where does that leave you then on the quantifiable effects of positive thinking, positive life structure, and being proactive, not just in your actions, but in your mindset then? You know, strictly in your opinion here, and I'll give you that as the out, just how much good can it do a person? And do you think that that amount of good is quantifiable than in like a directly measurable amount? Well, I mean, you see it in people who give up, right? Um, And accept a terminal diagnosis, uh, stop treatment. Um, often they don't last that long, right? Uh, because there, there is a component of will, um, and your brain acts on your hormonal system, which in turn acts again on your brain. It's a feedback loop. Um, so I, I do believe that it is quantifiable, maybe not in a way that we can entirely understand, maybe not in every instance, maybe not in, you know, there's not really a way to measure this. Like guy A was positive, guy B was negative, but like on whose account, you know, guy A internally was exactly why I brought up rape because his work is obviously still yet to be accepted. And many of his experiments are ongoing, but that's exactly the sort of thing he is working on. So the, the way a lot of people would kind of measure this, and, and I'm not sure about it, is measuring against expected life expectancy, um, you know, because we do have actuarial tables based on who makes it, who doesn't, and they take a lot of things into account. Um, so, you know, you could say that that immeasurable aspect is measurable in certain ways that it expresses itself, um, you know, overall health and wellness, um, lifestyle factors, sleep, diet, exercise, right. Um, general mood. Um, but that said that, you know, I'm sure you've met a couple people that were just plain too miserable and too tough to die. Uh, just seemingly hanging on infinitely out of pure rage and spite right so so there's a there's a counter example there but you know maybe at least a couple of those people right (laughs) right um so to go back to the gotcha i i would say that it, it it can be observed but it may not be able to be quantified does that make sense yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know me, I'll phrase them as gotchas, but I don't have a gun to your head on any of this stuff. <laughs> if if I if you put a gun to my head, I would say, yes, somebody could do it, but no, I don't know who that person is. Now, before we move on here, there is um, one more thing you mentioned there I want to pick your brain about just a little bit, if you have the data. I often hear yeah, go for it. referencing those sort of actuarial tables a lot in this sort of stuff. I have to ask, just out of pure curiosity, how much you know about that process and just how valid that data is. Because I hear all the time. Uh, so these numbers I really couldn't. Calculations for literally everything 
But I'm wondering if the signal doesn't get lost in the noise with that and just how reliable it is. You know, just because someone hands me 15, 20 binders full of information doesn't mean it has the actual answers in it. So a, a population model should never be used as a predictor of an individual. Um, and in many ways that I think that distinction is lost in the popular conceptualization, right? Um, where you're taking a person that doesn't exist based on an approximation of factors that they have identified. Um, so there is a mathematical validity, right? That if everything in here works in the way that we think it is, this is roughly what we think is going to happen. There's always an error term in any model, and I would encourage people uh, to pursue the work of Dr. Ben Hunt, uh, who writes under the handle Epsilon Theory, um, about the kind of nature of error term and the mischaracterization. Yeah, Dr. Hunt's great, isn't he? He's fantastic. One of my favorite reads. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I do believe that there is an error there. Um, inherently what these things are, are looking at is they are looking to kind of take the outcomes and, and tease out what might be pushing and pulling on them. Um, they are valuable in helping to make an integrated mental model of, of what is occurring in a group. They are not prescriptive tools for individuals. Um, in terms of how they're created, essentially, you know, you, you are taking a set of data based on outcomes um, with different factors that you've identified, age, lifestyle, um, you know, diagnosis, date, um, environment, um, which is why you see things like microclusters, um, which are interesting, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, so you're kind of taking these things that you think might be occurring and you are um, hoping to test them and identify them. And then you are using that model to kind of make a, a projection of outputs. So it is not worthless, but it is not, again, a definitive diagnostic. It, it's a, it's a rule of thumb. It, it's a, okay, well, here's one way it could go. It inherently, like everything else, is the work of human hands, the work of human biases, the work of human thoughts, human pessimism, human optimism. So for me, I suppose the reason I'm asking about this and the reason I want to rag on it just a little bit is because it seems to me to be inherently self-defeating. Because it seems to me is it's trying to take calculus, use it as a heuristic, and then use that heuristic to draw empirical claims about whatever cohorts are being evaluated. And perhaps I am giving them too much credit in overestimating their influence, and I can see the value for making financial decisions, i.e., you know, say insurance plans. But I'm not entirely sure I see or appreciate the value otherwise in using data like this. For the reasons you've articulated, of course. I mean, that could just be me as an So, yeah, I mean, I... I... 
so again, these things are supposed to work together, right? Like this is supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, a guide rope up the mountain, if you will, or a, a safety rope of kind of, well, if we're seeing things that are hugely outside of this, then our understanding is not accurate. Right. Um, so the idea here is that these things have to be continually evolved and they have to be part of an integrated picture of, you know, is this person engaging in their community? Is this person well-liked? Um, is, is this person taking care of themselves? There, there are so many factors that are important that don't necessarily show up in those tables. And that there are some that are only partially modeled. Um, so I think, again, using kind of basically what, what we're trying to do here is we are trying to reassemble a book based on out of sequence um, and missing, you know, missing pieces, missing pages, if you will, um, and put it all back together in a way that makes sense, right? Because we don't have a complete understanding. There's always going to be gaps. So when used correctly, tools like this are, are supposed to help us narrow the gap. Uh, but when used incorrectly, they become a target, right? Like where a doctor will say 90% of my patients beat their, you know, expected survival rate well okay well let's, let's drill into that data the expected survival rate that you gave all of these people uh was between 12 and 36 weeks which <laughs> compared to your peers is <laughs> half one third you know again like i said this doctor is either a huge pessimist or or they're rigging the metrics um they're they're letting the you know the table measure the ruler So again, that's what you have to watch out for with these things is when you ascribe a certain metric and that becomes the only lens by which you can affect it. Um, and that is kind of where I, I want to get into our last topic, which is the modern approach to public health and I think where it fails. Um, and we talked about this a, a little bit with COVID, but I think a more prescient example is the way that Western countries historically and continue to respond to the AIDS pandemic. Um, AIDS effectively evolved out of a West African autoimmune disease into something more virulent, something more dangerous, something more deadly uh, in the kind of petri dishes of the worst excesses uh, of Western Western society of Western bourgeoisie degeneracy, if, if you will, to borrow a couple loaded terms. <laughs> Please borrow them all you like. <laughs> so this is where you kind of see things like the solution becomes clear, but there's a series of internal contradictions based on a, a, a theory of society, which holds that, this cure, um, in which case in the 1980s, which was to shut down the bathhouses, <laughs> they didn't do that, obviously, because this is San Francisco. We can't do that. So they admitted defeat. I mean, for lack of a better word, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of people on here have either, uh, they're either familiar with and the band played on or the infamous thread. But it, 
you look at a continual failure of a society to accept our role in behavior in feeding this and making this worse and continuing to get people killed. Right. I mean, that's a particularly galling example because the behavior was so abnormal and so unnecessary uh, versus, you know, the expectations of, of polite society. So what does that tell us? I'm sorry. I said you would hear people deny that because it seems self-evident, especially at this point. All right. So what does that tell you about the way that these things work? You take something like an obscure um, immunosuppressive virus, which the best theory that we have uh, on AIDS is that it adapted from simians from either, uh, you know, the eating of bush meat, um, the contamination of a wound, um, in somebody who had a certain genetic susceptibility to the kind of internal code, the, the infernal logic that, that is that virus's profile. Uh, and it kind of sat around for a while until it found a pool. Um, it found a pool in West Africa as many hemorrhagic and immunosuppressive fevers do. You know, Europeans get typhus and influenza, Africans get Ebola, uh, Lassa fever, right? Like, again, I, I talked about the kind of the mindscape of the jungle creating tropical diseases and the mindscape of the forest creating these toxic molds like anthrax, um, you know, out west in, in the dry desert, the burrowing animals incubate a specific bacteria and that bacteria once it eventually gets to humans it spreads like a plague to wherever it can find right like that came from the eurasian steppe and it exists in north america um so there is again like a, a shape to these things which is I'm not going to argue whether or not it's intentional but it is relational to the grounding of human experience. So to go back to, to the AIDS virus, the AIDS virus somewhere in the fifties, sixties and seventies, when there was rapid urbanization in West Africa, it begins to concentrate and mutate and move from something that it would take 10 years off your life to something that would kill you very quickly. Uh, and AIDS, AIDS itself doesn't kill you. AIDS itself. What it does is it's the kind of ultimate opening of the gates. None of your systems work. Something as simple as a common cold can take you out if you have this virus because it, it effectively is the the ore killer. It it goes right against the defenses. It does not um, get caught up in anything, and so it mutates in this pool of sex workers, urban, um, you know, for lack of a better word, urban slum slum dwellers bushmeat hunters, you know, really in, in the dregs of that society um, as European colonialization is coming apart and globalization um, is really starting to pick up um, the popular theory of AIDS, which is, you know, arguably disproven, but could be proven is, you know, the famous example of the air steward who brings it home. The less famous example, and this, in my opinion, is Castro's great crime, um, is the introduction of AIDS to the Caribbean from their anti-Western anti, anti -Western activities in Angola. 
again, society shaping what diseases are here. That disease is not supposed to be here. And yet, 40 years later, we're still talking about it. Um, and why is that? Because we have created a series of pathways which allow this thing to keep going. Um, there was a series of pathways opened up unintentionally that allowed it to get here. And then there were doors that continue to be held open and are held open to this day. Um, another great example of, of continuing to hold the door open is prep. You know, we're spending twenty to $50,000 a year to keep people from spreading what is effectively a lifestyle disease um, through risky behavior because we can't monitor and can't, can't get rid of that behavior because that would cause too many internal contradictions. But the mobilization of thousands of smart people, billions of dollars in order to protect a marginal group from the consequences of their own behavior, that's okay because, you know, we're a nation of problem solvers. Um, we are a nation of unlimited capacity and this is, this problem found us. So we got to do something about it. Um, and that goes back to the mentally opening the door being kind of the, the first way that it happens. Right. And that's how exactly and, what we were saying earlier, right? We have a certain level. We have a that's exactly what we were talking about earlier, and not just a set of beliefs, but a strength in those beliefs that ostensibly is feeding our culture and our dedication to our culture and what we consider to be our cultural values, but is in fact also feeding. X, Y, and Z diseases, ailments, conditions. Which to get exactly back to my whole thing about egregores is something you have to be especially cautious with, not just with egregores in particular, but in any sort of esoterica whatsoever. You know, this is diverting our subject here. This is the exact same thing as when people trip on DMT and machine apps. How do you know what you're talking to? How do you know what you're empowering when you choose to believe set of values presented with the thing you think you are believing in? You know, how do you compel something to give you its true name? And I hope people see where I'm going with this. But I'm going to let them think on it while we finish our conversation here. So uh, I think that that's a really interesting place to leave it. And, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm neither a, a man of belief nor a man of science, right? Like I, I don't understand enough about either to firmly stake my colors to either mast. Um, there's a lot of things that I don't understand, but there are a lot of things that I do. And one of those things is kind of human systems and the way that they often betray themselves uh, through a kind of suicidal devotion to a conceptualization that is not able to meet the reality that they find themselves in. Um, and, you know, you hear about a, a kind of lack of will to go on. Um, you know, the, these things are fragile or hold against and on the natural world. There's a lot more precarious than we think. Um, there are 
things out there that we don't understand in ways working that we don't understand. We're continually finding new types and new structures of viruses and bacteria out there. Um, who's to say that, you know, or, or to, to get really spooky, what's the difference between discovery and creation, right? <laughs> Perspective in many ways. Um, Absolutely. And I think that inherent contradiction um, is something that we're always going to struggle with. But I, I think the one thing that I've observed from human systems is that taking a, a positivist out, outlook on this, taking an affirmative stance, um, works better than the alternative, right, of, of trying to exert control and understanding that there's a limit to it is what we need to just understand when we're building out these structures and building out these responses that our capacity is not unlimited, our abilities and our understandings are not unlimited, and to just try to think about these things in a more holistic fashion, try to think about these things that we may be wrong, that maybe a lot of what we understand is right, but we're missing one key piece that will turn it on its head. You know, For example, the key piece of... Alzheimer's research that it was all based on was entirely fake. Um, so in many ways, there's another example of how this process can be perverted because so many people were getting all the right incentives from a process that they recognized as being correct, um, that all it took was a minor diversion from this process. And, you know, essentially 20 years of, of research capital and, and effort is entirely for naught um, because somebody decided that the that the system could be gamed in a way that was beneficial to them. Um, and they probably didn't even necessarily understand what they were doing and how long and how far that this was going to go. Um, so I, I, my next question is the, you know, how intentionally deceptive or incorrect do you think that research was given what we have just recently found out? That's a deeply speculative question, I know. I don't know, genuinely, because I, I think the way a lot of these things start out is they just need a little bit more room. That They're, they're almost there. It's like the gambler. The, the gambler stays because the, that next roll of the dice is going to be the one, right? Uh, and in many ways, this is all a process of gambling. This is all a process of negotiation. Um, you know, I, I made the point that this is a three-way negotiation between kind of human hands, the immaterial, and the natural world. You know, we we take steel out of the ground and we make it into and we make it into new shoulder joints, and then we use extract of goat balls in order to keep the body from trying from trying to eat the metal shoulder like think about the level of commitment and, and brilliance and and daring that it took to create all of those systems um, and, and bring all of that to bear to create a better outcome from for a person like that is really powerful and I, I guess what I would say is that we have a responsibility to to take these things seriously, to, you know, understand that these levers have gravity when we pull them. Um, and that would be kind of my final word on the subject. I, I don't have uh, a neat closing statement as to how all this works. I just think that there's a way that we need to be thinking about it and a gravity to it. That's very important. I'll leave it there. I think 
that for saying you didn't have a good closing statement, that was the perfect one. That is totally in line with everything we say here at the Scarlet Thread Society. That is exactly one of the lessons I wanted my audience thinking about coming out of this. You know, think about the impact that your thought, your mindset, your attitude has the world has on the world around you, not in a sort of new age, positive vibration sort of way, but in a very real, what is the impact here? What is the impact of what the people around me are thinking, etc., etc., etc.? Understand the gravity of choosing to believe or disbelieve in something, and understand the gravity of choosing belief in the processes that you use. And I think we absolutely can leave it there. Thank you so much, Mr. Roach, for coming on again. Is there anything you'd like to plug before I just cut you off the hook here? Buy a t-shirt from anybody associated with Timeline Earth, Scarlet Thread Society. Paz isn't going to shill, so I will. Well, you're an absolute sweetheart. Thank you so much, sir. I look forward to having you back in the near future when I get back on the main subject for this arc. Looking forward to it.